I didn't find out about my favorite band, Dead Eye Dick, until I heard New Age Girl on Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. <laughs> I actually, for some reason, I didn't have the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack, but I actually had the Dead Eye Dick album with that oh, song. Oh, wow. Are there any deep Dead Eye Dick cuts on Here, that? Here's the thing, though. <laughs> that song is the first song, and I don't know that I ever went beyond maybe the second song. <laughs> Instead of uh, deep cuts, so they call them deep dicks when it's dead eye dick songs. Deep dicking. <laughs> God. Shh. Listeners, welcome to a new episode of a free podcast. I'm your co-host Rob, joined as always by my uh, my. Black-winged friends, Duff and Joe. <laughs> yep, I've, I've dyed my hair black for this one tonight, guys. I'm shirtless on top of the roof with my guitar, just shredding, <laughs> wailing, <laughs> while uh, it's we, raining with an electric guitar. We have we have a whole new season. Uh, Duff has crafted a season. We are talking about when movies attack, and we're starting it out with none other than The Crow. Now, Duff, if people haven't, between the title of this movie... And what the name of our season is. Haven't figured out what this is about. Why don't you explain to the listeners? Uh, when some type of uh, horrific incident or accident happened on the the set or production of a movie. And it almost becomes more famous than the movie itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a, good way to, that's a good way to describe it. So we're talking about The Crow from 1994. And uh, obviously... We'll get into uh, the the tragic death of Brandon Lee in this movie. Um, but, of course, before we even get to that, we got to talk about what even is The Crow, in case you haven't seen it or if it's been a while. Um, so I'm going to try once again. I'll actually keep this really simple because it's a go, pretty go simple get, movie. Uh, go get your Cure album on before yes. you listen to this. <laughs> um, so it's, it's Devil's Night in Detroit. And uh, we see the aftermath of a murder of, of Eric Draven and the rape and death of his girlfriend, Shelley. That's sort of how the movie begins. And we also meet a young uh, a, a young girl named Sarah, who uh, was like a friends with the couple. So then one year later, uh, a crow shows up and awakens Eric from his gravestone. He rises from the gravestone, and at this point, it becomes a revenge film where he is going to um, uh, essentially uh, kill the people who, who murdered him and also his his girlfriend. So he does that through various means. Uh, we have such luminaries in this gang as Tintin, uh, <laughs> who is a knife guy. Every guy in this gang was named by a five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, don't you have T-Bird? You have, yeah, you have uh, Tintin, Funboy, T-Bird, and Skank <laughs> are the uh, the four members <laughs> of this gang. Uh, and he, he tracks down, essentially the movie kind of follows as we track down uh, each of those. So so the knife guy, Tintin, he gets killed uh, in a pretty cool one-on-one battle, but essentially uh, uh, Eric, uh, or I guess the crow, I mean it's Eric, Kills him with knives. They're a which team. Is, They're a team because uh, he can see things through the crow, and I think shapeshift or transport. I don't think he can transport. I think he just has crow vision. 
but Did sometimes you... but sometimes the crow will fly into a room and then all of a sudden he'll be there. Oh, but he, then he's more. I, I don't think it's shape shifting. I think it's more of like a Batman thing. You know how like Batman, like someone will look away and look back and he's gone. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought too. I, I think he just is like really fast and can just and sneaky and can just sort of appear and disappear mysteriously. Into the shadows. Yes. So I I love that they just went all in on the the literal crow magic, but I could have used a little bit about like, what are the, what are the laws of physics? What are the ground rules for the crow team up? I don't, I don't, I don't need that. I disagree on that, but I I mean, uh, yeah, well, so, well, essentially the, the crow is essentially scouting ahead and then, uh, he can see through the crow and then Eric, uh, will then like track him down or track down whoever he's going after. But then, you know the the crow doesn't really do much battle wise until later in the movie. So uh, so you've got Tintin. He, he tracks down. He also tracks down Fun Boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fun Boy is uh, is uh, we kind of meet Sarah's mom, who is like uh, kind of a strung out. She's uh, rough. She's yeah. had be- seen better days. Rough times. Uh, and so, she, so Fun Boy is, is back with Sarah's mom, and then Crow shows up and kills Fun Boy and scares Sarah's mom straight. Um, then we have T Bird. Sorry, but n- yeah, not even set straight. Like, doesn't he like cure her addiction with his magic crow powers? See, I don't think he cured her addiction. I thought he uses crow powers to like, like, to like get all of the the drugs that were in her body right now out. So that she wouldn't like, you know, so she could so- sober up real fast, and then he would listen to the his his uh, his crow teachings. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then and then we have T Bird, who looks like of this like sect of the gang is kind of in charge of it. Uh, T Bird is played by the uh, God. What is his name? David Patrick Kelly. Yes, of David Patrick Kelly, who uh, is I remember from the Warriors. He's the yeah warriors um so he's in this and then t-bird is all about fire and driving so that's how he dies that's the one thing is crow kind of kills people the way uh eric kind of kills people the way that they kind of like live their their life and then skank gets away who is essentially a speed freak and then that kind of brings us back into the head of all of this which is none other than top dollar (laughs) um who, who is like um uh, who's the lead singer of the of the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Oh, Anthony Kiedis. <laughs> yeah, Anthony Kiedis. If, if, if Anthony Kiedis was a baritone. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So the top dollar, he's kind of like the gang in charge of all of this. And then we kind of like have a, a final battle that that uh, Eric ends up uh, giving top dollar the 30 hours of pain that his um, girlfriend went through between like the rape and uh and being beat up and then slowly dying 30 hours later. We also have a lot of stuff where there's a cop, a, a good cop that helps out named Sergeant Albrecht. Played we got, by? Um, we got Winston Zedmore. Yes, Ernie Hudson. Yeah. Yeah, Ernie Hudson, yep. Oh, yeah, 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 from Ghostbusters. And um, and we have um, and we have Sarah in there as well. And then essentially by the end, uh, he kind of has to – he kind of dies at the end after the end of it because like, he finished his mission back and then he from, died, back, I guess. Back from whence he came. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of that, right? I mean, he he, he gets his vengeance. Am yep. I missing anything important? Nah. I'd say the only, the only character you missed 
and I only bring it up because of the wonderful actor who plays him is Gideon. That's yes. oh, the pawn part, shop owner. Part a pawn shop owner, and he uses gets info from him and finds his uh his ex girlfriend. He was engaged, so his fiance's ring there. Yes. One of the gang members had pawned it, and played by the always wonderful. Are, are you ever disappointed to see no. the great John Polito uh, come on to the, uh, appear on the screen? Absolutely, uh, he, not. he's he's one of the great great actors. He he's like a Looney Tune come to life. He's and I mean mm-hmm. that into it with with full love. Like that that is a good thing. Like yeah. he is, like you could not invent a, per, a guy who looks and talks like that. Probably my favorite part of the movie is when he's in it. He's great. If you don't know who we're talking about, Google it and you go, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, from, yeah. I mean, his greatest role is probably Miller's Crossing. Miller's Crossing. The other thing uh, that I should bring up is really what this movie's about is the importance of tenant rights. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that's why we find out, uh, and I'm sure Duff will get into this, but this movie's told a lot in flashback about what happened. Uh, on Devil's Night, and that's essentially what we find out is his girlfriend was like trying to. This listen, this is not a very great, uh, flattering view of Detroit or this version of Detroit that exists in this movie is terrifying. Counterpoint: yeah. Has there ever been a movie that made you think, ah, Detroit looks great? Like, yeah. <laughs> not Robocop lifetimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So. Uh, so yeah, it's about she's essentially like trying to get tenant rights, and uh, they're upset about it, and they they come and 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 kill them. So yeah, it's kind of a not very well fleshed out plot about how the bad guys own the building, and they're he trying owns to everything, I guess, and they're trying to evict her, <laughs> but mm-hmm. they don't have ground, I guess. So yeah, I mean that's essentially the crow. Like I said, it's a it's a revenge film. I think what we're gonna probably end up talking a lot about is. Um, is there's a there's definitely a look to this movie and a and a feel to this movie that I think lives on as much as like I would say the death of Brandon Lee in this as well. Like I feel like this movie's not really so much about what happens as much as what it looks like when it's happening. Yeah, this is um, at many times a silly movie, even oh, though yeah. it, even <laughs> though it takes itself very seriously. Some of it you have to give a pass because it's impossible to talk about this movie without for numerous reasons obviously about the death of uh brandon lee but especially because uh he died with about a week left to film in this yeah and it would have been horrible and upsetting to the production no matter what but uh they hadn't really they hadn't filmed the crucial scene that they could open scene yeah um yeah which is the scene where Eric's girlfriend is uh, accosted and raped by the the gang, and what was originally going to happen is Eric was going to walk in. He was carrying groceries, and he comes home, and he confronts them and ends up getting shot and falls out the window. Um, and so, what ended up happening? They had a uh, a forty four magnum, and. The best guess about what happened is that they had loaded blanks, which or potentially bullets, but there wasn't any powder, and that there were nothing would cause them to fire. Um, yeah, essentially they were they were switching between it, the gun never had actual live ammo in it, 
but they were they had they had used it. Let me know if I'm wrong on this. They had used it for a shot earlier where you kind of see like a like a like a projectile. It's the intense close up where they load the gun or something. Or, I think it's yeah. when they shoot at it and you can see something come out. Like they want to be able to yeah. see something come out, and it's not like a real bullet, but it's like uh, you know, it's in the chamber, but it won't fire because there's no explosion and there's no propulsion. Yeah. So. Um, so they have that, and then and then for the actual like um, the, the the thing that shot, happens, the they have take. like they have blanks in it, and so there was something that went awry yeah. between switching it. And like, am I? Didn't they like because of budget reasons? Another like, I mean, I think there is something against the, you know, it has to come back on the director on this a little bit. Like they sent home the safety guy. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't look into the, so much the personnel details. Um, it's not entirely clear, I think, what happened when, but people say that the tip of one of the bullets or the blanks broke off when they were doing the close-up, and then they loaded the the gun with uh, uh, the powder, and, I mean, people who know about firearms are, like, yelling at <laughs> Yeah, we're, the, we're <laughs> gun talk with um, Robin Duff. <laughs> so the thing that makes the, thing that makes the, the gun go boom <laughs> was then added, um, the actual, like, triggering event but there was the tip of the bullet in there and and then what happens in the scene is that they had a squib which a Mm -hmm. squib is something that blows up and gives the appearance of a bullet hole but it's really like a little cap going off so they did this scene and they thought there were blanks and the squib goes off and brandon lee falls over and they yell cut and he doesn't get up and they go over and he's bleeding out from his abdomen um and it was eventually revealed that they had uh, the tip of the bullet in him. Um, Brandon Lee was, he was on the operating table for, f- uh, about six, five or six hours. Six hours yeah. He had 60 pints of blood, which is like five full grown men's worth of blood. Um, and they found that, a this article said a bullet. So it's kind of like, I tried to find reputable sources and some say the tip of a bullet and some say bullet, but it enters his abdomen and it got into his spine. Um, yeah, and, and part of the problem, right, is because even though, like, it wasn't like he was shot with a real bullet. He was shot by, like, a fragment of something that wasn't supposed to ever come out, and then it did come out, but since he was only, like, you know, 12 feet away when they fired the gun, it's enough to, like, break through. And, I mean, especially, it sounds like it just hit that sweet spot and went straight into his spine and cut through him. Yeah, I mean, it, it, absolutely an accident. And the other thing I think that's, like, incredibly sad is... You know, the guy, I mean, whoever it was, but the guy who fired the gun is just like another actor, right? It was uh, the guy who plays Fun Boy. Yeah. Michael Massey. And from what I read, he like took a year plus off from just working because he's just, I mean, just devastated. Yeah. That, you know, uh, and I also read like an interview with him recently the last few years where he's like, I still have nightmares about this. Like you just oh, don't get ab- over this. Absolutely. That mm-hmm. you don't, you know, you, that's just something you have to learn to live with. It doesn't go away. No, not at all. So it's, it's just, I mean, so, it's all an accident. But yeah. like I said, I mean, there was like, uh, there was it's an accident, but and, someone and was, is responsible, but they never, yep. the problem is so, well, number one, um, Brennan Lee's uh, fiance uh, Eliza, I forget her last name, apologies, but like everyone associated with Brandon Lee's like, you need to finish the movie and put it out because Brandon would have wanted that and this was going to be his big breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're like, okay, how do we do this? So uh, they 
they did the reshoots and they used a stunt double and they did some very early uh face mapping cgi and it's not great but you can't really be too mad mm-hmm. no i agree i think uh, i mean it's an awful hand to be dealt but i think all things considered i can't imagine how you could have done a better job of like still finishing a movie that feels whole yeah. and and you know um i mean it's it's the other sad thing about this is this is you know I don't know I don't know if Brendan Lee would have became a star but like it is one of those movies that does make someone a star right like you you know it's kind of like this like it was a decent sized production it had like a twelve million dollar budget I think. yeah and it's you know Which it's back in of, those back in those days that you know that's not a you know not a small chunk of change and it's definitely like a star making movie right I mean that's yeah that's sort of like the point of this character is this, like this you know it does kind of create a franchise but it could have you know. It definitely was like more that could have happened with this. Yeah, and uh, Brandon Lee's mother, who Jesus, what a what a heartbreaking life that woman's had. Oh, <laughs> I know. Um, she she uh, originally there when there was an investigation, um, the DA found that it was just negligence and he didn't charge anyone, and then Brandon Lee, uh, his mother sued uh, the production company, uh and said that um, it was illegal to have live ammunition on set even. That's a violation of safety code or union rules. Um, And she said that, you know, it was just negligent. And we don't really know how it went because it was a civil suit and it was settled out of court. Okay. Well, you know, you mentioned, mentioned obviously, Branley is the the son of Bruce Lee, who didn't die on set, but, like, you know, similar tragic end for him. And I don't know how much you guys know about his death, but that's another like crazy story as well. So it's kind I, of mysterious. I, right? I I was gonna um liven things up a little by ending this that uh there of course there are uh Brendan Lee conspiracies. Oh no. Um, yeah. and they also mentioned Bruce Lee. So there's only two. Okay. Um, the first one is that uh Brendan Lee Brandon Lee, I keep saying Brendan, Brandon, was uh he was murdered by the triads who are organized Hong Kong criminals and they were supposedly mad that he wasn't working in their films. They were financing that Brandon Lee went to Hollywood. Well, that's also for Bruce Lee too. Isn't there stuff like that with Bruce Lee as well? If they think that the triads killed him. Uh, I believe so. And that, yeah. that also uh, leads nicely into the second conspiracy conspiracy is that the Chinese mafia had both Bruce and Brandon Lee killed because they exposed their martial arts secrets to the west to the western <laughs> come world. On. Come on, <laughs> I mean the 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 Bruce Lee death. Uh, I think is worth talking about because one, it weirdly ties back to our Bond season we just did, mm-hmm. and that is because uh, he first it was in in uh, see Bruce Lee died when he was see Brandley was twenty eight, Bruce Lee was thirty two. That's awful. Yeah. Um. So he was, uh, when he was working on, uh, when Bruce Lee was working on Enter the Dragon in 1973 in May, he um, had seizures and headaches and like uh, collapsed during an ADR session. And, uh, and then in July that year, he was in Hong Kong having dinner with George Lazenby. Hmm. Do you guys know this? Hmm. Did George Lazenby kill Bruce Lee? No, he was intended, they were going to make a film together apparently. And um, then he met with a producer and all. So essentially what happens is later that day, they go over to someone's home to go over a script. 
And then he complained of a headache, and then he got a painkiller, which contained aspirin and a, and a tranquilizer in it, and then he went down to take a nap, and then he never he never woke up, essentially. Um, and there's all sorts of stories about what happened. There's some that he might have been allergic to something that was in the painkiller. There's, um, But I think like one of the more interesting ones, theories, is I had no idea about this. One theory is that he it might have been a heat stroke, because uh, in 1972, Bruce Lee had his sweat glands removed under his arms. Come on. Because there was a belief that underarm sweat was unphotogenic in film. And so there is this one <laughs> how, actually kind of. How kinda, do you even do that? I don't know. But like, you know, there is a theory that like his body had just overheated during those times. Um, and couldn't cool down the way it would naturally cool down. <laughs> Is he like a cause... dog? Did he have to pant? <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, it could just result in heat stroke and then exasperated the, the I think the official cause is cerebral edema that he had. Anyways, just as you mentioned, just tragic. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. and that and that became, when The Crow came out, You that was, and to the studio's credit, they didn't, do any hyping up about Brandon Lee or Bruce Lee they mm. they took the high road and it was released but even with that that was all you heard about this mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. was about the death of Brandon Lee and so this became a pretty pretty good sized hit I mean, it almost made a hundred million dollars uh, oh. all, all said and done that's impressive for 94 or whenever it came yeah, out. Yeah, like 1994. And uh, we'll t- talk more about the soundtrack later, but the soundtrack went triple platinum. Yeah, the soundtrack was huge. I think it, I'm sure it, the production made money off of that. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so um, that's that's why they had to do the flashbacks in the movie, right, Duff? Because they kind of, like that was a way to sort of tell that story without you know, showing that it's not actually Brandon Lee yeah. in those, in those, I mean, in, even ignoring well, all the tragedy about it, it's really, it really sucks that you don't have your lead actor for arguably the most important scene in the movie. But we'll talk about this more later too, but the comic is also structured in flashbacks. Oh, okay. So, so it, maybe... might, it might not be because of that. Okay. Okay. Um, so the other thing I want to talk about is I had never heard of devil's night before guys. Is that a thing I should know? So I was vaguely aware of it, but I did not know what a thing it was. Is, it, the, is this what the purge is? It's <laughs> so is like, it? <laughs> I mean, I've I was seen like, the purge and I can't, we talked about it. I can't remember. So I was, I was kind of aware things. that like devil's night was like the night before Halloween. It's, and when it's when kids went out and like got into mischief, but I always was confused by that because that's what Halloween is too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, devil's night is a thing that was practiced in the U.S. in especially the 1960s to the 90s in like Philadelphia and Detroit. And it was it was like literally, yeah, kind of purge night. Youths would go out and do like petty crimes. <laughs> like there'd be... Wow. And like during the 70s, um, like most things in America began to get worse. <laughs> like <they're, laughs> like uh, it began, it you know... Prior to that, I feel like it was more like egging and toilet paper and trees. And then in the 70s, it becomes like arson and carjackings. And in Detroit, it said 
this article says the destruction reached a near peak in the mid to late 80s. In 1984 alone, there were 800 fires in America on Oh my God. Wow. So that was a real thing. It's, yeah, it's a real thing. It just, it was before our time. I think like each year we were, like when we were born, it was all, it was kind of peaking and then it waned. Isn't it wild? Okay, this is somewhat related, but not related. I find it wild what things I think are true and aren't true from things that happened prior to when I was born versus things that are true that I never heard of. For example, this is just one example. Devil's Night, apparently hundreds of fires, never heard of it until I saw this movie. Okay? Key parties. <laughs> All right? We, everyone's heard of key parties, right? Yeah. yeah but, no, but no actual evidence of their widespread use. Yeah, what? key parties never really happened. No. That's just a thing that was, like, made up. Uh, it, do, it does sound like an urban legend. It's just wild that, like, of these of these two things, if you're like, listen, what do you think is going to spread to future generations? That we were, that 800 fires are being set every night or on the night before Halloween or that, like, couples were dropping keys in their, <laughs> suburban couples were dropping keys in their bowls and going home with their neighbor's so, husband. So, so the crow is more realistic than the ice storm. <laughs> I guess <laughs> So I'll make another, so. Rob, I, I kind of, you know, the, your whole truth is stranger in fiction thing. Like another good example of things, of a thing like I heard growing up that most kids did um, and then learning about something weirder that actually happened is if like, you know, an alien landed and you're like, which of these is true? That there's some weirdos who put razor blades in Halloween candy <laughs> <laughs> or... Or that in the 70s, for a brief period, it was, like, in vogue and chic for couples to go see porno on a date. Yeah. <laughs> Great point. Yep. Like, like, yep. like, someone would be like, well, both of those are pretty wild, but there's some pretty crazy people. Like, nope, porno. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Porno theaters, that was a real thing. Key parties, not. <laughs> More, yeah, listen, people there's tune still, into there's it. There's still time to fix stuff. it. There's still time to fix it. Yep, yep. yep. That's so why you yeah. keep that big popcorn bowl around. So yeah, Devil's Night, a real thing, apparently. Um, and so okay, all right. I didn't realize that. Now, Joe, you mentioned the comic. Mm-hmm. Um, now I read a little bit about the kind of the backstory behind the comic that was written by James O'Barr, which I found uh, fascinating. And 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 touching actually, um, you actually read the comic. This is what I do for for you guys and for our listeners. All right, so let us know. <laughs> I, like, I drove twenty minutes away from my house to get this from the library. Wow. Just, yeah. On Devil's Night? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but you missed the key party on uh, t- t- Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. Um. So okay, can you let us know? Like, I, maybe the backstory behind the whole thing too. I think is really important. Yeah. I mean, I know that he lost his girlfriend she died uh, in an accident at the uh she was hit by a drunk driver mm-hmm. and he, mm-hmm. he was also an orphan growing up too like just a rough life so he channeled all of that grief and anger into writing this comic which is uh it's like i don't know five or six issues but it's it's pretty it's all collected it like together into one book uh i'm talking about the original it's been like kind of re sure sort of like the movie i guess you know there's sequels to it and stuff but the original yeah crow comics and they came out in 89 i think late 80s yeah uh and uh yeah the first issue yeah 1989 and 
the was this a major comic label like Vertigo or something, or was it indie? It was uh, C- Caliber Press. Yeah, I think it was an indie thing. Yeah, indie uh, Image Comics, I think, got the rights to it eventually, and now uh, IDW uh, owns it now, which is a pretty one of the bigger comic book companies. Um, so I I was like, well, I, I as I was watched the movie and I was reading about it, I've always heard like, oh, the comics way better, and then I watched this movie. On Monday, we were recording on a Thursday. I watched it Sunday or Monday night, and I was like, "Why don't I just get the comic? I'm an idiot. Just go read it. How mm-hmm. long could it take?" Yeah, and it took me, I don't know, an hour or two to read it. And it's um, yeah, okay. I'll say this: it's definitely better than the movie. I guess we haven't ever really given our opinion on the film, but the the comics. Yeah, the, if you're only going to do one or the other, definitely just read the comic. But the the movie is like, I, I think the movie works visually in a lot of ways and almost like I don't like the look of the crow right I mean like the, how the like how Eric Raven Draven you guys get it Eric D Raven yeah mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> glad I could spell that out for you yeah it's not uh, subtle uh, either the film or the comic <laughs> which which is I guess my like all that said, I feel like the movie kind of doesn't work in a lot of ways because tonally it's all over the place yeah. like it's it's this revenge story and also, like, there's these, like, comically, comically over-the-top villains that you can't... Like, they're not even scary because they're so... They make the... They make um, Batman's rogue gallery look, like, exactly. realistic. I was going to say, it's like the 60s Batman show. Like, you have this movie that is visually indebted to uh, Tim Burton's Batman. Absolutely. And yeah. literally rains until the last scene. Every every scene is raining it's always night just a dark brooding movie and but then you have these like goofy characters named Tintin and fun boy <laughs> bebop and rocksteady it is not a good movie but i enjoyed the experience i'm glad i watched it <laughs> like yeah. somehow somehow i missed this even though it was huge in the 90s well and, and the differences between the comic and the film um there, there are some things that are are common to both some of the criticisms you just made but the comic some of the weaknesses of the film the comic doesn't have so the the villains i would say are even less scary in the comic book like the way they're drawn is very grotesque they're disgusting human beings they're just constantly like smoking crack it's like kind of borderline offensive at some points in the way okay. like the african-american characters are depicted but i mean i'm not gonna make i don't know I don't. I don't certainly don't think the author's intent was to be racist or anything. It just kind of makes me uncomfortable when. I guess I'm just assuming the author's white because yes, okay, <laughs> just because it's an extremely also, it's an extremely white person look. <laughs> I mean, you're basically designing your character after Robert Smith. So and uh, also like in the late bet. '80s, like all media was just depicting big cities as just crack filled. Oh man, like the that... urban decay of like movies in this era is crazy. It's like cities seem like the the there's nothing seems scarier than a city in a movie from like nineteen like seventy through like ninety five. Up, cities up until like horrific. Giuliani <laughs> is. Like, even, like, family movies like Ghostbusters, New York just looks, like, grimy and gritty. Yeah. yeah. So, so the I, I think, like, it can be chalked up. Like, the act, the, the writer is just very angry. And, and, and I think it's really important to read the comic book with knowing the context of it. Because yeah. if you don't really, 
if you don't know that about it before you read it, it's extremely hard on its sleeve and earnest and like it it's very emotional like you know we it, it's extremely emo <laughs> i guess and if you know that he's processing the loss of his girlfriend then you can read it with a very forgiving eye but if you kind of read it not thinking about that stuff you're just like this guy needs to relax <laughs> yeah and it's i i don't know if you saw but i read a quote from him from 94 uh where he talked about how he was hoping like he did this project at, hoping it would be like a personal catharsis thing and instead he said quote as i drew each page it made me more self-destructive if anything there's pure anger on each page so it doesn't sound like it helped um it's it really is uh like a very very angry comic and very like nakedly emotional and that's not this and it's fine it's way better than the movie so i'll say here's what it's got going for it first of all like the flashback structure is structured much better in this film the the manner of his his death and his girlfriend's death is very different. It, it okay. is there's the tenants right thing is totally made up just for the movie. What a weird thing to add in there. And they don't die in their apartment. So basically, he keeps having these flashbacks to the nice d- days leading up to the relationship, and then the crow keeps telling him not to look, like don't look. And the crow is mad at him because why are you looking back at the past? Why are you dwelling on the loss of your girlfriend? It's it's distracting you from your purpose here, which is to kill these guys who hurt you guys. Hurt mm-hmm. So it finally culminates in like the last issue, or maybe the second to last. It finally builds up to the actual event, and they're already engaged at this point, you know, just like the movie. But they're just going on a they're a drive, and their car breaks down on a highway, and Fun Boy and the crew are smoking crack in the car, and just kind of drive by their broken down car and like end up stopping to harass them. And then it's, so it's just, a, it's just a totally random act of violence. Okay. And then okay. they, they shoot him, they rape and, and, and uh, kill his girlfriend. And he, I don't remember if she does, but he ends up suffering for a long time after it too, even though he's like shot in the head, it doesn't kill him. Okay. And then he comes back. So, but the, the, it's works better because he keeps during slower points in the book, flashing back to memories of him and his girlfriend and the crows, like telling him not to look, which I think is, you know, subtextually, like there's no point in dwelling on this, but he also can't help it. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. And structurally it works. And, but the villains are equally like, they're even less scary and even more incompetent in the comic book. Like, okay. just just ridiculous people who he dispatches really easily. Interesting. Okay. Now, the other the reason why so many people love this book is it's 1989, and you and you could be like uh, a moody outcast teen, and you can read a book about a very angry guy who's who's designed to look like a buff Robert Smith. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's filled with Joy Division references. Okay. So it, okay. this is just like, a, just a, I can't even imagine a better book to read when you're 16 years old. None of you, you, you none feel of like your, an outsider. You're, you're an outsider. You don't know anyone else who likes the same music as you. You never see any depictions of people who like listen to Joy Division or dress like this or or have you know face like makeup on and to black hair and dress and wear leather pants. Like it's it, it's a really cool like if you think about it like I'm 16 and I'm reading this in 1989. Oh my god, mm-hmm. it's yeah. awesome. That's but when really you're 38 point. and 
you know, and you're t- t- really cool and popular like I am. Like, oh it, yeah, it yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't yeah. hit quite the same. So one one thing uh, similar to hypothetically being a 16 year old 1989 is being junior high age when this movie comes out. Oh my god! This this movie was it's funny it was disproportionately huge like you know it made a little bit of money but if you were like say ages like 12 to 15 even if you didn't see this movie you knew about it and people yeah. were super oh, yeah. i had multiple friends who had crow posters yeah it's, it, it's the same thing yeah i mean you're seeing like there's these sort of underground comics like didn't the spawn movie come out around the same time too i think 97 is spawn so there's this moment where, and I wonder if Spawn would have even gotten made if it wasn't for the success of this film. I think there's also like a, you you know, we mentioned Tim Burton's Batman has an influence on this, but there's also like, you know, Batman's for everyone. And, and the crow kind of does like lean into that outsider thing a little bit too. Like, yeah, I know a lot of friends like Batman, but like, I'm a crow guy. I, I can see that. Well, and, and I wonder... I can't I was only what 14 we were 14 when this came out I wonder how how much of it is is its killer soundtrack that like if this was an age and this is what I probably spent this week thinking about the most is it's the last age where a soundtrack can drive the popularity of a film and mm-hmm. it's, it's never the other way around like a couple years later the Pulp Fiction soundtrack comes out and that, that I remember being super popular too and and this soundtrack was just massive. Were were kids going to see it because it featured like they were hearing this music on the radio and and they that's driving interest in it as well. I, I don't know, but or to to piggyback on what you said, um, you had people going to see it, and this might be the first time they were exposed to like the Cure or mm-hmm. to yeah. Rage Against the Machine or whoever is on this soundtrack. Nine Inch Nails. Or Nine Inch Nails doing a Joy Division cover and then they learn about Joy Division. Uh, so just just anyone curious, I'll give a quick rundown of uh, acts on the soundtrack uh, that you'd know. The Cure, Stone Temple Pilots, Nine Inch Nails, Rage Against the Machine, Violent, Femme, Violent Femmes, uh, Henry Rollins Band, Helmet, Pantera, Jesus and Mary Chain, uh, yeah. And then some other groups you haven't heard of, but just just a deluge of bands that will piss off your parents and make you feel things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like I said, a lot of those songs are covers too, which you kind of get that like other way to, you know, like I, I do think you know even pre-internet, like you know, you listen to, you know, you're a kid and you're listening to this this soundtrack and this Nine Inch Nails song, and then you've got an older brother or something or older cousin or someone who's like, oh, Dead Souls. <laughs> Yeah. Let me play you the original, and like, I th- there's some stuff like that that can happen with that too, which um, can be really um, can be really meaningful when you're that age and learning that stuff, and like, you know, opens up a whole new world that you didn't even exist. Yeah, yeah, I think there's like for me in general in this movie, I think there are just things I kind of understand the impact and res- and I don't I don't know if respect's the right word, but acknowledge about this movie than actually uh, enjoyment of the of said movie. Did it? Did this movie win any awards or anything? Was there- uh, so that, not really, except in one arena, and that is the MTV Movie Awards. <laughs> oh, yes. for sure. This the, is yeah, a great, golden this, age of it. This is yeah. This is maybe the peak for that type of uh, MTV content because this is really before the internet took off for video games getting super huge. So 
well, I, I may have misled. It did not really win, but it did nom. It was nominated. So I just did. Did you see who was nominated with it? I, I was gonna read off. Yes, because there's there's <laughs> I didn't there's some this. very relevant content all around here. Okay. Um. So best movie. I'll read off the losers first. We had The Crow, Forrest Gump, <laughs> Interview with the Vampire. <laughs> oh my God. And Speed. Ah! Now, Speed is be- somehow the only one that we haven't. Wa- uh, talked about so these, and it's definitely the one I love the most of so all those. these yeah. all yeah, lost too. out to Pulp Fiction at MTV Movie Awards 1994 That's you know fair. I, I will um, say if you just glance I never really spent much time paying attention to the movie awards at least in the 90s it's kind of a pretty respectable set of movies that end up winning it I'm sure they did better than the Oscars um, like Brandon Lee was also nominated uh, at the MTV Movie Awards for Best Male Performance he lost to Brad Pitt. Oh man! An in- interview with the vampire. Come on, man! <laughs> and and this is not uh, not related to the crow, but more Midnight Boys content here. I'll le- I'll read off uh, the 1994 MTV Movie Awards Best Actress losers first. You had Meg Ryan and When a Man Loves a Woman. I don't remember this movie. I don't. I <laughs> kind of va- vaguely remember it. Uh, Uma Thurman and Pulp Fiction. Jamie Lee Curtis in True Lies, and the final loser in the category, Jodie Foster, Nell. Oh, oh no. man. And they all lost out to Sandy in Speed. Nice. Oh, yeah. She deserves to win that. So so uh, I, as we're on this topic, here are the 92 through 99. Here are the winners of the MTV Movie Award, okay? I actually want to argue this is a pretty great list that, sh- that like shows the 90s well in cinema, okay? Here we go. I'll just go 92 through 99. Terminator 2, A Few Good Men, Menace to Society, Pulp Fiction, Seven, Scream, Titanic, There's Something About Mary. So those are all movies that are still popular. That are, yeah. that are still like referenced in the zeitgeist. Yeah. yeah you, you, you cannot say the same for the Academy Award winners in that period. No, that's why I mean it's kind of impressive. If someone like was like, "What what are some movies that define the '90s?" and they gave me these like nine movies or whatever I listed off, I would be like, "Yeah, it's pretty good. Good job, MTV Movie Awards in the '90s. I feel like you really nailed it." Yeah. One thing that we have to mention about The Crow, and it is probably arguably as influential as The Crow. Is this influence on professional wrestling? Oh yeah, I was wondering. I couldn't believe you didn't put this on the agenda. Yeah, Sting. So I can't believe I forgot. Sting, Sting reinvents himself. Uh, in God, I don't remember exactly when it was. It was not like immediately after this movie. It was a couple years later. So it was probably like ninety six, ninety seven. But he kind of reinvents himself as like before. He kind of he always had like face paint, and it was more like. Like, uh, like, um, uh, think of, is it Guile from Street Fighter with a flat top? Yeah, that's Guile. He, yeah, he kind of had like a Guile feel to him, but like Guile meets Ultimate Warrior would be how I'd say like Sting was before. And then he rebrands himself as like essentially the crow where he wears all black. He, uh, would have like black pants. He'd have a black tank top on it. That would have like a white. Uh, scorpion on it he'd have long hair and then his face would be completely painted white 
it was awesome. And he also had a black bat that he would have. <laughs> and he would like he would like just show up in the rafter sometimes and like they would like he'd be up there like with a big trench coat on with his like black like baseball bat and it was super cool and a hundred percent is just influenced from the crow. Yeah. He just stole the crow. Just stole the crow. Uh and 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 like and in a weird way like captures a whole I mean you know, captures a whole other audience that might not have even, you know, where the crow's, uh, you know, emo-ness doesn't necessarily appeal to him. And now, he, you know, professional wrestling audiences are, like, loving this crow character. Do you guys have anything else on the actual movie, The Crow? I know we've got some questions here we want to get to. Yeah, let's get to the questions. We've been talking about this movie long enough, I think. Uh, all right. So, related to this, um, 1994, this movie comes out. Uh, how emo goth however you want to describe yourself were you in 94 1994 we're, we're 11 or 12 at this point in 1994 not at all uh, alt i guess a little bit i mean i listened to like stone Temple pilots and, and nirvana and, and stuff like that at that point so i listened to alternative music but like like sort of the dark brooding stuff uh, i did i didn't really listen to any of that kind of thing until a couple years later yeah, I was, I was, I mean, I've already sort of answered this question with what I said I would do on Tuesdays when I went to school. I had, <laughs> I had, I had more than one wrestling shirt for sure. <laughs> um, and musically, I was probably just listening to a lot of Metallica at that point. So that was, that was me, just Metallica and wrestling. So not, not very. That's so kind of emo. Nice. So it's pretty dark. So you had the anger, but not necessarily sensitive anger. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty far from this, about as far as you can get. Like, I had, like... Well, that's when uh, you started your job at the factory, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had to to grow up. I think the closest I got was I listened to that first Hole album a lot. Okay, all right. Which is still a really good album, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, (laughs) Hole kind of gets forgotten from that era. Yeah, I agree. That that is kind of weird. Uh, I was scared. Right. I was scared of the kids who were into Marilyn Manson. If that says anything. So okay, I, I've got a good question for you guys. It, you mentioning Marilyn Manson made me think of this. I I think like probably the two two interesting mid mid nineties like kind of like darker brooding goth kind of movies would be kind of The Crow, and then a couple years later Lost Highway are great examples mm-hmm. of two soundtracks that bring like this kind of darker kind of music into the mainstream. And I, I was trying to think of another soundtrack that I could pair to, but I think probably Lost Highway. And of course, both of them feature a, a new Nine Inch Nails song, too. But hmm. I would I would also toss in uh, the Craft, which I think was a little oh. a little later on. Oh, yeah. But but much like the Crow was just super alt, super goth, and you know really, I mean it would be interesting if you talk to even people like ten years older than us and they'd be like what the hell is the craft like they probably wouldn't remember it but once again to a certain age that was the movie at that time yeah like movies were for teens like a soundtrack delivery device for a good run oh yeah think of romeo and juliet big one for romeo and juliet soundtrack so i think what you like bringing it back to your question like these soundtracks could expose you to music like you mentioned earlier that you wouldn't otherwise hear at a time when older millennials are really starting to forge an identity um, 
uh, yeah. So I, I think a lot of people our age probably like could look back on all those soundtracks we just mentioned, and they, there's probably at least one song in all of them that like had a massive impact on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a like maybe one of their favorite bands they first heard because they heard it on there. I probably heard. Hmm. I might have heard Nine Inch Nails for the first time because of the Crow soundtrack. Uh, okay, so so final question on this: uh, what what would you what would you avenge? So if a Magic Crow comes to you, and uh, you're not dead, you're alive. Magic Crow comes to you and like I'm, you know, I don't know how it, Crow talks to you. Crow visions you. That, Much uh, like the movie, you just make up the rules. Yeah, you know, we're gonna we're gonna write some wrongs out here. We're gonna go do some stuff with the help of a crow. Um, You've got unfinished business. Yeah, like that's yeah. the way it's phrased in the set up in the movie is the crow usually takes your soul to the afterlife but sometimes they stay because they have unfinished business okay so what's, you... what's our unfinished business i guess is what you're asking yeah um all right I, my answer is kind of a bummer usually that's a, that's a spot duff and i take it's for kind you. of a bummer movie so that's fitting uh so you mentioned earlier about how there's a scene where he like uses his curl powers to take the morphine out of that woman's arm Yep, I, I would use my crow powers to save Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, that's, that's good. Not, that's not a bummer. That's, I mean, no, I it just makes me. It always just makes me sad to think that he's gone. Like, but he's my favorite actor of all time, and, and I I really miss him a lot. Like I knew him, you know. But I just miss. I don't know. Yeah, I, it just man, it kind of it makes me emotional thinking about it. But yeah, I would definitely. That's a good answer. I would save. I would save Philip Seymour Hoffman. What about you, Duff? Uh, well, mine was just really like petty and stupid (laughs) oh mine's even pettier so i can't Um, wait mine mine would just be me and the crow would would go off and find um all the teachers and authority figures who told me i was too cynical and we we (laughs) would say that you were right and we would just make them eat it i I was only suspended from twitter 10 times (laughs) just tell it's like this country is stupid as hell you you apologize to me all right, so and, mine... In fact, that's what it is. We're not even going to like, you know, like hurt him or anything. Just me and that crow are going to stare him down and be like, we want apologies. And all of them would be like, who are you again? Yeah. I all guess right. not really because you were already this tall. Uh, <laughs> so you haven't really changed the way you look. You haven't aged a day. I guess your hair's, your hair's a little grayer, but other than that, you look exactly the same. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go. Mine is not avenging. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. Uh, you listen, we're gonna have a hot take on here. We're gonna get some people mad. Oh so what I'm gonna God. do is we're gonna end it, right? So we're gonna do fine. See, here's what we're doing. I'm gonna be so petty. I'm gonna use the crow to to uh, <laughs> the crow's gonna do all the work for me. Okay, <laughs> naturally. And uh, and the crow is going to attack dog walkers with dogs of shoes. <laughs> what is that? that is- <laughs> so what's wrong with that? Dogs don't need shoes. They, when those sidewalks are all salty, the dogs mm-hmm. need to have little boots on. It, it, so t- when when I see a three-legged dog, is it because they stepped in some salt? Their their feet can bleed from it. Mm-hmm. Like what, well, if you if your little doggy came in from a walk <laughs> and its paws were bleeding, what like, would you just be like? Well, that them's the brakes, pup. <laughs> I would find a different route. You can't control what the neighbors are going to do with the salt. Listen, if a crow attacks you while you're out walking, I mean, don't we, come I for mean, me. I mean, we don't put boots on me either. But, but, okay, I will also say this. The first time you put boots on a dog and they try to walk in them, it's very, very funny. I'm sure. 
I have two things to say about this. Uh, first <laughs> oh, of all, no. first of all, I'm a dog owner. Taking it, I'll take it on face value. Joe's argument. How come no one, like before, like 15, 20 years ago, how come you never saw just tons of dogs with bloody feet? What do you mean? No. What does that mean? Like, well, why means, would you see them? Because well, I, because we had do- because growing people up, had dogs had, before this. You didn't, didn't have sidewalks where you lived, Rob. No, I know, but I, I grew up in a a literal like Levittown, a post World War II suburban okay town. And growing up, I didn't know anyone with a dog who had these boots. And I didn't come over and it's like, hold on, gotta wipe the blood off my dog's feet. Of all the things to get mad about, <laughs> something that literally has no effect on you, except once in a while you go see a dog and you'd be like, oh, it's got little orange boots on. Who no, cares? This, this, the, you know, I'm I'm on Team Rob with this. this Why? This, this, this Why is, do you care? Th- this because I've had to endure like 800 work conversations about dog boots. This, this <laughs> is, Who do you work with? I work dog with owners. people too. This, this, so do I. I've this never is, heard anyone talk about it. This is multi-level marketing nonsense. This <laughs> is this is 20 like 20 I'm with you. It's a pyramid scheme these 20, dog boots. 20 years ago it's like listen, white people got lots of money. They're going <laughs> to dog boots. All right. Well, here's how you two could do your part. And now, okay. now you know what? Screw you guys. Gonna, <laughs> I was gonna say there's something that you could do to help, but I'm not even. Don't put salt on the sidewalk. Fun. No, they make salt that that isn't doesn't mess up like dogs' paws. That's like safe for animals. It's it also is better for dollars more. It is pro- no, it's not. It's also better for the environment too because putting a bunch of salt on the roads and the sidewalks is bad. I just use sand. Yeah, well, because you live in Granola, Madison. Like, that's all you put on your streets, too. And everyone, like, there's an inch of snow and everyone's careening off into snowbanks like you live in Dallas. Since we're totally off track now, I'll say as a municipal employee, I've learned that everyone is using too much salt and that basically one cup's worth should do a whole driveway. That's a wonderful PSA. But what about the dog boot companies if that starts uh, happening? Get out your they hose. are in the pocket of the salt companies. Get, you got to get out the hose to wipe down the dog's blood. After. God damn it. <laughs> get that old blood towel. The dog's uh, coming in. Uh, make sure uh, you're... Uh, make, here's okay. a, here. do, you, do you put boots on when you go outside? Do you walk around in bare feet? But I'm not an animal, Joe. What's the difference? I also a don't eat off, I'd also no, don't eat off a bowl the on the floor. <laughs> Yeah, I use a toilet. Are you sure? <laughs> well, I, I, I've seen evidence to the contrary at least a few times for both. Well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's end on that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, Duff, what's next? What are we talking about next? Yeah, I actually uh, don't even know. What are we doing next? Uh, next week <laughs> is uh, Big Cats. Oh, uh, Roar. Yeah, which... Made in the early '80s, uh, well, <laughs> released the in the pre-dog boot era. Yeah, released in the early <laughs> '80s, but this movie was God. made over seven years and, and involved uh, many real lions and uh, tigers, and uh, some some injuries occurred. Did I don't they think show some scenes from this in Tiger King? Uh, Any of you reference so. it? 
they Maybe, might. I don't think so. I definitely think like Tiger King fans would be would really enjoy oh, learning about yeah, this movie because it's like the same kind of insanity. It's yeah, people like hey, and people and giant wild jungle cats can live in a house together, or a compound <laughs> together, and um, but yeah, it's it wasn't available on video for a long time, and then it kind of was finally released like five or six years ago, and it was became a cult thing again. So I've never, I don't think any of us have seen it. Mm-mm. Um. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Uh, all right. Well, um, I'm excited too. I've never seen it. I've only heard about it through you, Duff. So you guys are going to say more. terrible things about animals, and I'm going to get so mad. <laughs> we'll just see, man. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the cats had little shoes on so they wouldn't attack. <laughs> that would maybe work. <laughs> Seems like a really humane thing to do. Uh, okay, we will be back next week. We're talking about Roar, and if you want more content, you can go to um, patreon.com slash the Midnight Boys. We have an episode on Boxing Helena, <laughs> which has nothing to do with this. Um, we were harmed. We were yeah. harmed, yeah, yeah, watching that. So you can go check that out. We'll be back next week.